Welcome to Radio Film School Shortens. These are mini documentary episodes about all things cinema to hold you over until the next episode of the main series, A Filmmaker's Journey. If you want to know the origin of the term shortens, check the website. Enjoy. Hi, I'm uh, Joe from Chicago. I recently started listening to the show and I can't get enough of it, so keep up the good work. Um, I am interested in learning more about producing and financing a movie. So if you're looking for new episode ideas, I would be, I would love to hear more about that. Like, who do you ask to finance a film? How do you get them to take you seriously? Um, and my situation, uh, being an indie filmmaker, not in LA, you know, are most of my financers going to be non-industry? And if so, what would reassure them to invest in a movie? Um, and, and how do I assess my project to even know what to ask for? How much to ask for? Are there rough guides to go off of that people follow? You know, there's so much information and tutorials for filmmaking out there. Um, but this is the one aspect I'm still kind of in the dark on. So any insights you can provide will be thoroughly appreciated. Thanks. Last night, my wife and I rented Hello, My Name is Doris, starring Sally Field and Max Greenfield of New Girl fame. The movie had five producers, two executive producers, two co-executive producers, four co-producers, and two associate producers. That's a total of 15 people with some kind of producer credit. Now, one of the most confusing aspects of the film industry is what the hell do all those producers do? I mean, do you really need that many producers? Well, it just so happens that one of my closest friends is a producer. You've heard her on the show, along with her husband. Of course, I'm talking about show regular Yolanda T. Cochran. Last weekend, I was down in Los Angeles to film and record the sequel to our Women in Film series. I therefore took the opportunity to pose Joe's question to Yolanda and get what I believe is the most thorough answer on the question, what does a producer do? To give you context, for 12 years, Yolanda worked at Alcon Entertainment, the production company behind such films as The Blind Side, Book of Eli, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and more. By the time she left, she was the executive VP in charge of physical production. Essentially, she was like the number four person there. She then spent close to a year as a producing consultant to Netflix. She's also a board member of the PGA. That's the Producers Guild of America, not that golf tournament thing. All that to say, Yo knows her stuff. So you want to be a movie producer? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Shortened. So I know that many people when they watch screen credits see, you know, all of these different varying, you know, types of producers, co-producers, executive producers, associate producers, co-executive producers, <laughs> and then produced by. So it's like, what are all these people doing? What does it all mean? And it, and it can get quite confusing. And on, quite frankly, you know, even amongst people who work in the business, I think there is still a lot of confusion <laughs> about what each of those people are doing. 
I'll speak specifically to feature films. As far as features, a producer proper generally will be the lead main producer. And typically your intellectual property will be originating with the produced by credit. Those people will generally be the person who identifies, you know, either the story, you know, where it originates. Could be, um, could be a newspaper article, it could be a book, could be an idea that they come up with on their own, or they might identify a writer who has an original idea that they've come up with on their own. They may or may not have written it already. Those are the produced by credits. And that person typically will be the person who works closest with the director and all of the creative team to bring about all the creative elements to the project. That will be, you know, all your key department heads, your talent, your cast. They're also charged typically with making sure that, you know, the plan is put in place and that it's executed. And they'll be the person who is interfacing with all of the departments, you know, all of the creative elements, um, and from the, the very, very early days all the way till the, the end of the project when it's finished and in the can and ready to be in the theaters and being involved with making sure that the marketing campaign represents the film well and accurately or advantageously. So that's the producer proper. That's in, in, the, in the world of features, that's the, the credit that is most prestigious and um, is most impactful in the project. An executive producer is a pretty high credit as well, and that varies as far as the role of an executive producer. Some executive producers may be people who are involved, uh, for instance, with the production company or the finance company that's making sure that the, the project has come to fruition and has gotten the green light. They might be bringing some other very material uh, aspect to the project, be it you know, some bit of talent, maybe they identify, maybe they aren't themselves the money, but maybe they brought the money to the project and, you know, brought basically the means and the resources to the producer to be able to finance the film. They might also have some connection to the intellectual property or some other key creative elements of the project, but aren't directly involved from a day-to-day -day standpoint with producing the movie, so they aren't getting the produced by credit. Um, then you have co-producers, and that can vary quite a bit as well. Typically, co-producers are people like um, uh, line producers, although some line producers get an executive producer credit, some line producers get a co-producer credit, um, but the co-producer typically is someone who is directly involved with you know, the day-to-day um, the -day aspects of making sure that the project either, you know, from a development and creative standpoint from script basis or um, development is, is handled properly and or um, making sure that the movie is progressing day-to-day uh, -day, uh, during principal photography and making sure, you know, that schedule is proper, budget is proper, and you're getting through the pr production on time. But that person is does not is not of a high enough stature to have a produced by credit. For whatever reason, they maybe they weren't involved with the IP. They typically, I guess the way to understand it best is a co-producer is not someone who was integral to making sure that the project was a go. They're integral to making the project, 
but they weren't the ones who brought it to the place where it was going to be made. And then you have associate producers who also have some kind of tangential tie to the film from a producerial standpoint, but they're just a little bit lower on that rung. And what's the mission line producer? What's a line producer? A line producer is basically, I mean, a lot of times I'm asked what I do, um, and for the layperson, I always bring it back to project management. It's a word that most people can understand across any industry. Project management involves, you know, soup to nuts, you know, making sure that what it's basically game planning. What's our plan to make this movie? And the plan involves many, many um, different functions. I mean, quite the first and most important is the creative. Typically, the line producers and the production management are not heavily involved in the creative, except where it relates to making sure that the creative is attended to and um, is, is, you know, the first and foremost that we're getting across. And that involves, you know, who are the people involved with the project? You know, who are your heads of department? Who's your production designer? Who's your DP? Who's your costume designer? Who's your editor? You know, those are key people who end up being below the line, but they're going to be, you know, very important to making sure that the director's vision from a creative standpoint is brought to bear once you get into production. So ultimately those decisions fall um, and should be with the director and the producers of the movie. But, you know, there's an entire process of making sure that, you know, you gather and make sure who's available to do this, who's, who's appropriate to be considered for the project. Are they within, you know, um, are they of a stature? Because all of these people have worked in the business for a long time. So, you know, people higher up on the echelon have a certain quote, a weekly amount that they get. And so maybe someone's not appropriate to be considered for a project or, you know, maybe someone's body of work isn't appropriate for the project. So the creative elements um, do touch the line producer and production manager. Also, you obviously need to identify you know, from a creative and script standpoint, what is the story you're trying to tell and where, where does that story take place? And so what ends up happening quite frequently in our business is a lot of films are made in places where, you know, there are production incentives where you can add dollars to your production so that you can add more creative value to your production by being able to do it at um, basically a higher price point because you're getting some dollars back so your net budget ends up being less so there's a lot now a lot of uh, discussion in the pre-production process about locations where are we shooting is it going to accurately reflect what we're trying to do even though perhaps we're not shooting in the scripted location a perfect example is if something's shot um, in Toronto when it's meant to be or it's presented as New York um, it's, you're able to do it a little more economically in Toronto, but you're, you know, it, it's a creative decision because quite obviously you're not in New York and it does it look like New York. Does it look sufficiently like New York? Does it look like these specific areas? Perhaps does it look like Brooklyn? It's supposed to be Brooklyn, but you know, so those decisions and being able to wrangle that. I mean, it's such a big job to pull off any, any film production that you need to divide off, you know, and, and, and make it into 
you know, um, sections to create a, a game plan to pull off a film. So a line producer is basically the one who will um, be the main captain of doing all of that and, and will be the conduit to the creative and also the content, con conduit to the crew who um, you know are also below the line. And so scheduling and budgeting and locations and making sure you have proper legal clearances and all of those things. So the follow-up to Joe's voicemail question was about financing. Surprisingly enough, I found Yolanda's explanation for how movies get financed to be pretty fascinating. So how do you finance your project as an independent producer or a mid-level producer or a studio or <laughs> you beg? <laughs> no, it's a very complicated answer it's varied it's different every time obviously there's the studio system and you know the studios face many challenges from you know a finance standpoint a profit profitability standpoint obviously as do as does every producer and every production company the mid-tier companies typically you know will raise financing from, you know, generally a banking group, debt financing. Um, you know, companies like Legendary, companies like Alcon, they started out by putting together what is called slate financing. And so they pulled together, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that could be, you know, any combination of debt financing being, you know, borrowed money and then equity pieces um, from, you know, the investment bankers or investment entities that are putting money into those companies. That equity piece basically means that the investor will then own a piece of the company or own a piece of the films themselves so that when those films are profitable, then they um, realize a return. More often than not, it's a lot of debt financing, borrowing money from banks and those companies basically need to put together a business plan a prospectus of you know what what what's their group of films that they're planning to do and demonstrate you know some comps as far as what they believe to be the potential profitability of those films you have to have a a, a good enough reputation to be able to bond your movies because if you are debt financing those banks are going to require a guarantee that you're going to complete the film so that, you know, their collateral is secure and the collateral will be the film itself. If they lend you money and then you spend, you know, you say you've got a movie that you're going to spend $30 million on, they lend you the $30 million, you spend $20 million of it and never finish the movie. <laughs> what is their recourse? Their recourse is a guarantee from a bond company. So you end up paying a bond fee to have a, a bond company, which is basically like an insurance company, say, we're going to guarantee that the film will be completed so that it can at least get to the theater and have the shot to return the investment. So that's a mid-tier financing. But for, you know, true independent producers, you know, I, any of us, I, I was one of those people before, somebody from any part of the country who, you know, has a dream and wants to make a movie and has to figure out how to how to find the money to make it and where do I go to get that money. It starts with the IP. You have to have something compelling to be able to attract an investor 
or you know bring on perhaps a producing partner who then has a tie to or has relationships which they can use to go and get that money you know there's people like you know Don Cheadle last year did a movie about um, Miles Davis and it was amazing if you're gonna tell a story come with some attitude man Uh, Miles Davis. My name's Dave Braden, Rolling Stone magazine. I'm here to do your comeback story. Okay, move, move back a little bit. Yeah. Oh. Don't send people to my house. You have new material. My material. Now, Don Cheadle is, has been, you know, nominated for the Oscars. He's, you know, a very well-respected actor. He has a TV series. He's, you know, he's you know, had the Ocean's Eleven series and many other features, you know, very well regarded and respected. You would think an individual like that would be able to, you know, draw on his career, uh, his resources and so forth to raise money for a movie. And he had a really difficult time. I mean, you can argue about the subject matter and, you know, what that might have had at play about him being able to get this project off the ground. Quite frankly, I, I, I I'm still perplexed by it. But someone like him, you know, had a difficult time raising money and he actually did a combination of things, drawing on, you know, foreign pre-sales, I believe he did. You know, I think they did a little bit of everything. For any film, there are a lot of different revenue streams and a lot of different distribution means of distribution for the film. You can distribute domestically and that can mean theatrical distribution, it can mean home video, which home video now is is kind of transitioning. That used to mean, you know, DVDs. It's now involving streaming and all of those different platforms. Television. Television breaks down into paid television, free TV, you know, um, all those different things. And then you also have foreign distribution. So that can be everything outside of domestic is everything outside of the US and Canada. So each of these places and each country can have a you know, locally based distributor or several locally based distributors. And if you have a territory or many territories that have interest in your material for whatever reason, it could be the talent that you have involved, it could be the subject matter, certain genres do very well in certain territories. You can go and sell the distribution rights you know, be it theatrical, be it, you know, television, home video, in those markets and raise pieces of your financing. But I would caution that you want to be careful in that because if you piecemeal it too much or if you have a combination of territories, of specific territories, you could be cutting yourself off from potential domestic partnerships. There could be companies who would want to deal with you and your subject matter or your project, but because you've already sold off a territory that they might want to have for that particular project because they see that as, you know, a bigger upside for them, a bigger potential to, you know, be profitable. This is not necessarily the case, but let's say for instance, you're doing, you have a horror and you've already gone and raised money in the Asian market uh, for your horror and now you're dealing with a domestic distributor who wants to take on your film. Well, there could be the potential that 
they have historically had the most amount of profitability in the Asian market. And so they want to have that piece of the film. And because you've already sold it off, they don't have it available to them. So they may say no to you because the bulk of the, the, the revenue stream that they would anticipate for that project is not going to be available to them because you've already sold it off. When you do a foreign pre-sale, basically you are fully selling off the rights to uh, distribute that picture in that territory. And so that distributor then has the rights to any revenue um, that will come to be from, the, from that distribution in that territory. Typically what will happen is uh, there will be something called um, a minimum guarantee. And so when you do that foreign sales transaction, there will be a level at which that distributor is, is you're basically guaranteeing that distributor that amount of revenue without further participating yourself in that revenue stream. Now that doesn't mean you're guaranteeing to them that they're definitely going to make that amount. What it is saying is you, they have that minimum amount of revenue free and clear to themselves without having to share any of it with you. Typically those minimum guarantees are high enough that you don't see anything. So you're basically, once you sell that foreign distribution, you should be expecting that you're not going to see anything beyond that. You're not going to get any revenue out of that territory yourself. Basically what you're doing is, you know, uh, making it so that you have the funds to make your movie. And so going back to what I said earlier about being careful about where you, you know, which territories you sell off your distribution because you could potentially be ma making your project unattractive to a domestic distributor is you know, depending upon your partners and who your investors are, perhaps you have an equity investor who will say to you, I have a million dollars to give you to make your movie and I'm going to help you make it. Then you, but your film say is a $2 million movie. So you go and sell off the foreign territories, you know, however many for another million dollars. So now you have your $2 million budget based upon that. If your domestic partner wanted one of those territories, then potentially, you know, they're, they aren't going to say, okay, we'll distribute your film domestically. And your equity partner who gave you the million dollars is looking to gain their profitability from the revenue stream domestically and potentially, you know, uh, what they call overages in the foreign market. So the overage would be beyond the minimum guarantee that you gave in that territory. If the film performs beyond that, you can potentially participate in that revenue. And thank you for listening to this week on Radio Film Business School. In all seriousness, I found this information captivating. And if you need to raise funds for your film, it's information you just gotta know. Huge thanks to Yo for sharing the 411 on film financing. But what if you don't need to raise tens of millions of dollars, or even a couple of million dollars? Maybe you just need tens of thousands, or maybe just 10,000. Well, one of the most common ways for indie filmmakers to raise those kinds of funds is crowdsourcing. This is when you use sites like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or a service like Seed and Spark, which is a crowdsourcing site for filmmakers by filmmakers. Fortunately for you, earlier this year, I had Mara Tasker on the show. Mara is head of original content production at Seed and Spark, and she gave some insight into crowdfunding based on the success of crowdsourcing her own film.
there's a whole sort of pre-production that you need to consider before you actually crowdfund um, because the sort of, I think, default assumption and I think an incorrect assumption is that the platform that you choose will affect your film uh, in the sense that the platform has the power to either raise or not raise your money. And the truth is actually that you are the most important component of raising your our funds. And so what Seed and Spark kind of made us do was really just get our stuff together ahead of time so that we knew like in the, you know, in the first few days, we needed to raise 30% of our overall goal. We needed to show momentum. Um, the first people that were probably going to show up, were going to be friends and family. And then in somewhere in the middle of the campaign, we would lose heat and lose momentum and it would be terrifying. <laughs> We'd have to keep putting out content. And, and so in advance of that, what we did was put together a massive list of every blog, every website, every speaker, every actor, especially independent actors and directors, every person that we thought might be interested in this topic. And then we also looked at what the content of the story was. And it was, it was about an exotic dancer, but it was also very subversive. It was actually about sort of women's status. Um, and it was a grindhouse. And so we, we looked into all of those spaces too. And we started talking to people who worked in the space of Grindhouse. And we started talking to fans of B-movies. And so actually in the process of trying to get ready and sort of put together all of our contacts so that we would be successful, we had already reached out to hundreds of new people. And then once the, once the ball got rolling and we opened up our crowdfunding project for the month, we got back in touch with all of those people. And then others started to kind of come out of the woodworks. People, it was a word of mouth thing also. People heard about the project. Seed and Spark helped promote the project. And... So it was this kind of really beautiful mix of people that we had anticipated uh, talking to and then people that we had just never heard of, but that were kind of coming through, you know, via six degrees of separation or what have you. People were just really showing up in a cool way once the project got going and there was some word of mouth being generated. But really a lot of that has to do with with your approach to it. And I think the best thing that we did was kind of think about this the space that this film filled and really try to think about who was the audience for each of the kind of topics that it covers and then how can we get in touch with those people. And in that process, that's honestly where we unearthed a lot of really valuable contacts mm -hmm. and friendships. You know, what would you say is a key difference between like what Scene Spark offers versus, you know, obviously the two other really popular crowdfunding sources are like Indiegogo and uh, Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone's out there and they're considering, okay, which one to go to, like what sets Seed and Spark um, apart? I'm not asking like if yours is better, obviously. It's just what oh, makes course, it, yeah, of course, of course. What makes it different? What is it about what you guys offer that a, a filmmaker would want to pay attention to? Definitely. No, I, th I mean, I think that like Indiegogo and Kickstarter have, have wonderful ways of working in their own right also. Um, and so we're in this incredible sort of age right now where if you have an idea for pretty much anything, there's essentially nothing that should stop you. What I think Seed and Spark does a little bit differently that is valuable for content creators of any kind, we're sort of agnostic in that you can raise funds for, you know, film, web series, um, shorts, features, what have you. Uh, VR, anything, any kind of any kind of storytelling like that can come to Seed and Spark. But what's cool is that it is limited to that. And so what you kind of have immediate access to is this community of other content creators. And I think to have a sort of concentrated pool of people that understand what you're going through when you go to launch a project actually matters a lot because they can see you in like a final stretch. Um, and they can see you like just about to get greenlit and like know how how critical your timing is for that. And so that I think matters a lot 
typically like the majority of your funds don't don't normally come from from total strangers and a portion of a, a portion of those funds do of course but not not a sort of overwhelming majority but what's cool is that those strangers at least that we encountered through the student spark network really stepped in at like the the 11th hour and helped us kind of push all the way through and so that i think is something that's unique to the platform just because it's sort of for for filmmakers by filmmakers but i think honestly the the thing that helped us the most was the the resources that they gave us access to and that was really by way of by way of design on the platform the fact that it operates like a wedding registry and you can say you know we either need $2000 for crafty or you can contribute crafty i mean like i said when we had our camera package donated to us that had a value of $3000 and so when they made the contribution to loan us their camera it moved our needle so much uh and it and it helped the campaign have so much momentum and it was one piece of what we needed and so the way that it's designed to kind of be able to capitalize on any kind of contribution really does help you move forward quickly and helps you kind of build out your production sort of stone by stone and it's it's uh i think just it's very sort of helpful to have something that operates in that way because people can contribute things even if they can't contribute money and sometimes the value of what they're contributing is greater than the value of their cash. Well let me let me stop real quick and address that. So that's interesting. Sure. So so it sounds like what you're saying is let's say you're trying to raise $100,000 and you know that $10,000 of it is this super high-end camera package that you want to that you need to rent. Mm-hmm. Um and someone says Hey, I have that super high-end camera package, and I love what you're doing. I'll be willing to donate my camera package and my time. A person, a a person could do that, and then b it would count towards the total money you're raising. Yes, exactly. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, exactly. So it 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 makes it so that what you uh, so that between between that sort of loaned good and cash, you can you can reach your goal, and and frankly, it actually sort of sets you up to even exceed it. Um, because when you have like we so we had a fundraising goal of thirty five thousand dollars and we raised twenty seven in cash, I believe it was twenty five in cash, and the rest was all loaned goods, but the value mm-hmm. of the loaned goods actually exceeded that ten thousand dollar gap, and so we over uh, we were we were we were very successful we went over our our intended budget. I had a team of four really wonderful producers, and we had budget meetings constantly <laughs> before we even started crowdfunding. And that was really to figure out, like, are we making this for as little as possible, but also so that we can raise enough to make the proper film? And what's all of this going to cost in truth? And and so we did all that math and we basically sort of translated that budget into our wish list on Seed and Spark. And so all the num- all the values of everything were were sort of carefully put together and researched. I was joking earlier about this being a radio film business school episode, but the truth is, this is a business. Most of you are trying your darndest to make a living at this craft, and as such, you need to think of it like a business. You have to strike a balance between your right brain and your left. I'm thinking about doing more of these, so if you have a question about the movie business you want answered, maybe you want to know how and why to start a production LLC. Or maybe you're interested in securing rights to a book or stage play you want to make into a movie. How do you do that? Go to daredreamer.fm and click the leave a voicemail link at the bottom of the page and tell me your question. I'll see if I can get Yo or JD or some other guests to answer it for you. Or maybe I'll even know the answer. Who knows? I know a thing or two about this business. 
In the meantime, stay tuned after the credits and you'll hear part of my interview with a filmmaker who had success using Kickstarter to fund his sci-fi project. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. Chris Hesselage is our co-producer. We're also a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a cornucopia of podcasty goodness. Find more great shows at podcastica.com. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. Can you do me a huge favor? Just take a few minutes today and leave me a comment on iTunes, even if you don't use iTunes to listen to the show. It goes a long way to help others find the show and increase our rankings. It would be a tremendous help and mean a lot to me. You can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. That's it for this week. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or how many producers you have. Earlier this year, I posted my full uncut interview with filmmaker Adad Warda and his producer Tom Wineland. Adad and Tom are making a sci-fi action political thriller series called Sky City Haya and use Kickstarter to fund a high-concept promotional video to use as a pitch to studios and television producers. There's a link to that full interview in the blog post for this episode. But here's the excerpt from that interview where Adad and Tom talk about their Kickstarter campaign. This also happens to be the hilarious part of the interview where Dodd gets an unexpected phone call. Enjoy. I had enough money to fund um, this shoot, uh, which is for the entire trailer, Mm -hmm. but only enough funds to afford uh, one minute of special effects from my own pocket, uh, which we then thought we will use this to raise the money on Kickstarter. However, I'm not really viewing Kickstarter uh, solely as a way to get funding to make the promo happen. Mm. I'm also looking at it as a way to build the social media audience no, because one of the most important things later down the line is is if, if, if let's say we were doing this and we, we did this campaign and it went viral. I have no doubt that producers and companies would come knocking on our door and request meetings because what they care about more than a cool idea, fresh this or that, the other, they want something that has a built-in audience. Mm-hmm. Kind of like if you had caught the short concept film Sundays uh, by... And, uh, I'm sorry. sorry. Don't call me. I'm all I'm trying to call me on FaceTime. Not now. Um, the phone is blowing up. That's Hollywood calling you. They already yeah. heard about it. <laughs> Yay, good timing. Um, no? Okay. Uh, I'm, let me, let me, don't call me now. Good job. <laughs> I'm still on the call. Can I call you back, please? We're on the call now. I know. I'll be leaving in a little bit. I just want you to be able to get a hold of Ammo. Okay. I can't. Now, after, please. How long you think? I don't know. (laughs) I know. It's not. all I'm telling you. Okay. I'll call after, please. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, you guys are You know that's going in the show, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can't talk now, Mom. I'm on a podcast.
Yeah. That's funny. Anyways, um, I, I, I'm a Syrian, and we have a, a, a big group of Assyrians in the Central Valley in Modesto, Turlock, in California. And um, a family member of mine, my, my dad's uncle, works at the station, gives us time, and they were showing the, the trailer, and they want me to call in to answer <laughs> questions in Assyrian, you know, to viewers and everything. Who, so who was and, that? Was that a friend, a girlfriend, a relative, or what? That's my mom. <laughs> it was your mom. I was totally yeah. joking. It's so awesome. <laughs> she was so like, freaking awesome. your uncle is calling. He wants to know when you're going to be done. I'm like, not now. I'm still in the middle of the call. Well, it's kind of rude. You're making him wait. I'm like, no. Nah. You know, anyways. Uh, okay. It's right out of a Simpson episode. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, I forgot. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> you were talking about Kickstarter, building a social media campaign. Yes. And so, so I, um, like Sundays, uh, which, which went viral. And apparently there was a bidding war between three Hollywood companies five days after they hosted it. And of course, previous to that, they had done a $50,000 Kickstarter campaign to make it. Um, but yeah, three companies had come and Warner Brothers won out and they're producing it and developing it as a feature film uh, with the, d- the director of the promo to direct it as well. A similar thing with uh, the Leviathan, if you saw that, about a bunch of ships chasing a, a flying science fiction whale up in the sky in some foreign planet, uh, some extraterrestrial planet. Oh, that got that a million, Sorry? I said I haven't heard of that one. You got to check it out. The, the Leviathan. The most mind-blowing visual effects you've ever seen. I'm still not a story there. And I can also circle back to that, which is I find that a lot of concept, science fiction concept uh, promo pitches don't really have a clear story and I want to do that with art. I want to present not only great visuals but a, a very compelling and clearly presented uh, story. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, building the audience is very important because if we were to come to whoever in Hollywood and say, look at this amazing promo, wonderful effects, great story, and they were to say, does anyone follow it? Do you have uh, people on Facebook, Kickstarter, whatever? Oh, a couple people. You know, well, we're not interested, no matter how cool the story is, because we want to know that it's a tried and true concept that people are following and are willing to pay for to watch. Another example would be Kung Fury, you know, yeah. uh, raised $600 million and within days of uh, posting it, you know, producers, Hollywood they called. They raised 600, you mean 600000 They raised 600000 of a $200,000 uh, goal. Uh, right. On Kickstarter, which was mind blowing because the guy had no following and was completely unknown, um, and um, and it actually they raised the full amount within 24 hours of posting. Wow! Because the guy who plays Thor is a bodybuilder with a substantial Facebook following. Right. One of his followers posted it on Reddit, and then it exploded. Wow! Yeah. So, if we were to have that, that would really do it. But um, that's not happening. Obviously, it doesn't happen in most cases. That's, that's a real tough thing to achieve. Right. But if we can use Kickstarter to build the audience, Facebook to build the audience, Twitter to build the audience, then that is going to go a long way in convincing uh, whoever might want to pick us up. Yeah. But we also did some, uh, I think, some different ways of using Kickstarter. Yes. To, to launch the campaign. So what I did is I discussed with a dog, and I, I do a lot of different creative parties at my house. Yes, yes. Francisco. So yes. what I decided to do was obviously get it out to my social network and friends and stuff and said, I'm going to do a Kickstarter kickoff party for Sky City High. So we, we built the model, the actual city, and we had that as a silent auction um obviously really good we had a special drink that we created for the party 
Um, we had lots of, you know, I, I put up lots of decorations. Plus, my house is full of science fiction, so that helps as well. And, and Tom throws killer parties, so he went all Yeah, so I utilize that. So it really, what I would say to people that are trying to, to launch something is do something unique and different to kick it off. Don't just rely on the Kickstarter and your promo video and stuff like that to yep. get things going. You know, try to try to engage people and make them feel special, which they are, because if they're going to give to your campaign, you know, you want to treat them special. And it's not just about giving certain pledge gifts and stuff like that. So we had this party, and then I had a Dodd call in from Prague to San Francisco. We had a yeah, we'll, screen we'll and we allowed people to ask questions <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. 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 What were you saying, Dodd? We'll keep at 4 o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah, because the party was between 3 to 10, and I'm nine hours ahead, so I had to wake up at 4 in the morning. But it's okay. Sacrifice. Yes. <laughs> so another thing we also did, and I know other people have done similar things. Uh, Dodd and I, would, we created some little videos that could be put up on Facebook. Oh, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was another stuff. thing to keep interest going. And we're, doing, we're going to throw up another one because we, we were – luckily, we surpassed our first – goal and within what four or five days of that yeah and so and now we're working towards the next goal actually actually that video uh, tom's talking about i just posted today which one uh the one where uh i'm in front of Prague castle and then i have the visual effects artist and the composer speaking about why we need to meet our stretch goals and then something magical happens behind me at the end cool hmm? ah oh. Podcast,